Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to December's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy, and we're going to run through some of the key talking points from November. Hi, Cormac. Hello, Matt. How are you doing this month? It's, we're about to close the uh, 2022, so looking forward to 2023, but uh, it's been a roller coaster uh, ride so far. My 2020. Yeah, yeah, sure Having has, it. and uh, we'll we'll be recapping uh, 2022 in our in our next edition. But yeah, uh, yeah. that's going to be so a lot to, to unpack, and lots to unpack, as you say. So um, uh, let's crack on with uh, sort of November and sort of developments in early December. And I guess maybe we'll we'll we'll, we'll kick off with sodium iron because there's a lot of talk and speculation about sodium iron in the market at the moment. BYD is is speculated to be developing a vehicle using sodium ion batteries, although it hasn't confirmed that at this stage. And, you know, lots of excitement about sort of sodium ion in sort of two and three wheelers in energy storage and uh, the potential for it to potentially take market share away from, from lithium ion. Do you have any thoughts on that? I just can't keep up with what's going on with sodium ion. Uh, everybody in China, uh, a little less outside, is investing and developing sodium mine parts of the uh, supply chain. You, we have camp plants going up. We have discussions about sodium iron recycling already. So that's pretty good that uh, we know where we need to go in terms of catching up with, with lithium ion. But for example, CATL claimed their sodium ion batteries will have a range of about 400 kilometers. So as you were just saying, sodium ion can achieve ranges of three to 400 kilometers, will definitely be able to take up a, a large part of the EV industry and within those range requirements. And, and what about the, the manufacturing sort of process? Because I understand it uses um, Prussian white and Prussian blue, which are obviously manufactured from cyanide. So, you know, from the point of view of developing low carbon transportation, surely that's going in the wrong direction. There's uh, Prussian blue, there's intercalation compounds, there's a, a number of different cathode materials that uh, you can use depending on fired iron have uh, their own cathode choice, for example, natron energy, another uh, sodium ion manufacturer. And of course, you choose your cathode materials based on the energy density and cycle lives. Sodium ion cathode materials with higher energy density, but lower cycle life similar to what we have in lithium ion, and it's a trade-off. And it's unclear which uh, will be um, the ultimate winner, so to speak, in uh, sodium ion cathode materials. But um, there's not that many companies working with the Prussian blue, I believe. China is more similar to the, they're working on layered oxide materials, so very similar to intercalation compounds for lithium ion. Okay, so, so that's not, not an issue in terms of well, the carbon intensity. I haven't seen many studies on the carbon intensity in terms of which material, but um, yeah, there's the Prussian blue root and the layered oxide are a combination of both. So CATL is working with both layered oxide and Prussian blue in terms of uh, cells. The layered oxide is like, for example, has a energy density of about 150, 160 watt hours per kilogram. Prussian blue is a little lower, 140, 120 to 140. And then you have, uh, you know, 
fired iron working with also layered oxide material has about 140 155 watt hours per kilogram and as you know that's pretty similar or just below lfp okay what sort of metals are we seeing in the layered oxide materials sodium obviously we have a multitude of i don't have them in front of me here now so i don't want to i don't want to try other metals is it like transition metals or or Things oh like yeah, that. transition metals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So, and I mean, I guess the the big question for sodium iron is obviously we're seeing it in relatively small amounts at the moment, and uh, the big question is if we were to upscale the manufacturing base, would we start to run into inefficiencies the way that we have in the lithium iron space? I mean, the idea about sodium iron is obviously sodium chloride is very very common much more common than lithium salts in the crust. But the other problem associated with that is actually the manufacturing of, of some of these products may be a little bit more complex. And um, how easy is it going to be to upscale the manufacturing chain? And that's what really trips us up with lithium ion batteries, that because when you do it at scale, then you start to expose issues in the manufacturing chain and shortages. And uh, yeah. the big question is, will we be able to upscale sodium iron without running into those issues and shortages? Interesting question. Yeah. For example, as you said, for um, Prussian blue, cyanide is involved. For some of the layered oxide, just escaped me, but you know, many are based around iron. But you also have vanadium involved, which is um, could be issues in the supply chain also for the layered oxide cathode materials for sodium iron. I'm seeing uh, in China, obviously, all, most of this is taking place in China at the moment, even though we have UK has done some great work in sodium mine and, and, and US. We're seeing like one gigawatt hour uh, sodium mine manufacturing plants being commissioned, and we're seeing sodium mine cathode plants. And it'd be interesting to see what the supply chain like looks like for that, who their sodium chloride suppliers are, where are they getting the cathode material, I mean, uh, the precursors from. And then we'll really get a better idea how sustainable it is on a, on a large level. These plants yeah. so far are like 10,000, 15,000 ton cam plants, which even in lithium terms are quite big cam plants. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll keep a, a watching brief on that one. Just want to, to move on uh, geographically to Canada, where the big news of the month was obviously the Canadian government ordering a number of Chinese government Chinese firms, rather, to divest their holdings in um, Canadian lithium juniors. That was big news in Canada. Was it big news in China? Yeah, all this is big news in China. China is understands that they're not getting the welcome mat laid out in the US or North America regarding their divestments from those lithium juniors. I think that was uh, Canadian government after a long process of investigation. They determined that there might have been some state entities involved in these Chinese companies. And of course, that didn't really pass the due diligence test in terms of national security of minerals. And, and it really shows um, slightly different to the Australians and the Americans that, you know, there's a line being drawn in the sand here in terms of uh, lithium security. Your feeling is the due diligence identified the Chinese state entities potential involvement in the acquisitions? Because, I mean, it's notable, for instance, that the Canadian government hasn't moved against all Chinese yeah. companies that have holdings in, in Canadian entities, should we say? Yeah, yeah. Not every Chinese company was asked to leave. You know, there's yeah. much, a lot of Chinese investment in lithium in Canada. CATL have invested in lithium mines in Canada as part of the 
due diligence process uh, and these Canadian miners are listed in, in, in Canada. And some of the, not all the resources were in Canada, right? I think there was- No, a, I mean, one of them's in Chile. So yeah, one of them's in Chile as well. sitting there going, well, you know, <laughs> where are you really coming from? <laughs> there was a lot of work done to identify these players and who's, you know, there's a bit of a black box as to the companies that invest overseas usually have different names, just English names, really, uh, yeah. to, to domestic company in China. And there's a lot of layers to the domestic companies. And uh, uh, more often than not, there is either regional or provincial investment in these companies or overall state investment. And um, it just didn't pass the test. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I think that's a, a very interesting clarification that it is a, um, a focus of the Chinese state investment rather than Chinese companies per se, which perhaps yeah. hasn't been picked up to the same extent by the Western media. That's great. Thanks for that clarification. And just moving on to one of the things that, that I come across quite regularly in, in conversations with investors and um, particularly brokers in the Western world with regards to um, LFP and its usage and growth. One of the pushback items that we regularly get on LFP is that uh, it's never going to take off in the Western world because you can't recycle it. Now, um, I don't believe that's the case. Do you have any input on that? You're correct. Yeah, LFP is, you can recycle LFP. It's been recycled, Chinese recycle it, BRUMP has been recycling LFP for a long time for CATL and GEM also. Green Line, who I, I, I'm currently working with, produces a, uh, a LFP recycling machine. I think it's well worthwhile recycling LFP. You know, people say there's no value in it, but outside China, Iron phosphate, which is one of the materials that's going to be that comes out of your LFP recycling machine, mm-hmm. is not uh, available in Europe or US. So um, it's well worth recycling it and holding on to that material um, because developing an iron phosphate ecosystem in, in Europe and US is going to be extremely complicated. Yeah. The other thing to be aware of is obviously with lithium prices this high, it makes a lot of commercial sense to recycle LFP. And indeed, we estimate that something like two or 3,000 tonnes a month in uh, lithium carbonate equivalent terms is coming from, from recycling now in China. So it makes a lot of sense to, to recycle lithium in a way that perhaps previously it didn't. Recyclers were always focusing on, on cobalt, but now you know it is economic to recycle lithium and it is economic to, to recycle LFP. And perhaps where this sort of misunderstanding comes from is perhaps people looking at a ternary recycling circuit, pushing LFP through that and not getting an economic return. But if you have a recycling machine or or, or circuit that is specifically designed for LFP, you can economically recycle LFP. That has huge, hugely important takeaways for how viable LFP can be in the Western world. Because uh, I mean, it's what, 55% now, 60% of the Chinese EV battery market? Yeah, yeah. Crossed the 60% mark recently, I believe. Yes, it's growing from strength to strength in China, obviously. I think we're going to see another resurgence in the ternary materials though, over the next couple of years if uh, we can get prices to come down, energy density to go up, of course, improvement in thermal stability and all the rest of that. But I, 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 I think NMC can hold its ground. I think the other important thing about LFP that perhaps people 
are not understanding is that the purity requirements for raw materials for LFP are considerably lower than they are for, for ternary. With high nickel ternary batteries, 20 parts per million either way, even 10 parts per million in some of the cathode materials can make a huge difference to, to how viable the battery is. In uh, LFP, the purity requirements are, are nowhere near as stringent. And I think that has pretty substantial impacts on the quality of lithium that you can use for your LFP cells and also the quality of, of other inputs as well. And I think that opens up more of the market. So LFP is more accepting of material, therefore it can accept a wider range of material, I guess you would say. I think that's a core consideration when you're looking at the new lithium projects that are coming on the market. Well, yeah, it still uses battery-grade lithium, uh, lithium carbonate. Agreed, but it's not so, you know, the purity requirements are not so stringent for an LFP battery as they are for... Yeah, well, well, one of the big concerns in ternary materials is iron content, and that has to be low. Obviously, LFP, you got a lot of iron, but... um, hopefully tied up in the crystal structure though and not yeah. loose but um yeah yeah the uh the purity quality uh, requirements are, are are lower but uh you know there's still three nines thereabouts generally the, the precursor materials yeah. that's just you know not industrial grade material for example yeah. yeah okay that's great moving on to ev sales bit of a slowdown in sales globally actually but led by china in october signs that November also wasn't quite as strong as, as hoped for. A lot of that is, is down to COVID. Signs that with the sort of reopening in December, <coughs> starting to see recovery in, in sales. Are you hearing that as well? Well, just, you know, the reopening, you know, we won't get sales numbers until the end of the month, but from basically August to now, August to November, relatively flat in China, Going up, of course, but uh, relatively flat in terms of the BEV sales. But uh, I guess just to, to emphasize what normally happens is, is the last two months of the year, sales really accelerate on a month and a month basis. So what we're seeing in China is that sales are up on, on a year on year basis, but they're not really pushing up on a month on month basis as we would have expected. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's complicated by a f- few issues. Again, it's the subsidies, you know, there's uh, national subsidies, there's uh, and city or statewide subsidies. Uh, Beijing, for example, is going to pull their subsidies on um, scrapping IC vehicles and purchasing an EV uh, electric vehicle or scrapping an EV vehicle and purchasing EV vehicle. Over 2023, they're going to completely remove that as a, uh, as a tax benefit or subsidy. And that usually drives the Chinese market subsidies. Because subsidies were supposed to be, nationally, subsidies were supposed to be removed at the end of this year, but they've been extended. So into 2023, we would have seen, we would expect to see a huge amount of cars bought between um, November and December. And we'll see what the December uh, numbers look like. But um, so far, it's been a little bit flat, but I think December is going to be, and for example, um, you might have heard that it's rumors, of course, but uh, that, that Tesla is going to cut production in the Shanghai plant by 20%, has been, is currently uh, reducing production by 20% on the, primarily around the Model Y, I believe. And that's quite interesting, right? Because the goal is to, of Tesla is to produce a million and a half EVs this year. And I believe they're going to fall short unless they have 500,000. 
domestically, they're doing okay in China. I think the real issue is the European market where they're been shipping a lot of material uh, or a lot of vehicles from Shanghai into the European market. And uh, the European market has really slowed down over the last sort of three or four months or so. They're struggling a little bit in China as the OEMs are pumping out uh, EVs now. And then that's seen across the board in, in China for the uh, EV startups, your NEOs, your ideals, and the other. A number of uh, EV startups went to the wall actually in the last month or two as well in China. So. Established OEMs are pumping out more EVs. You got your SAG, ICM, also your Wuling, your favorite car. Also, actually, it made a return in October. It was back up to second place in October. Yeah, yeah. I'm very pleased by that. I mean, the issue for Tesla is that the Model 3 continues to to perform. It's perennially in the top 10 of Chinese models. But the difference is that BYD, for instance, has seven models in the top 10, and Tesla's only got one model in the top 10 in China. And I, I think that the issue is that Tesla just doesn't have the breadth of models that the OEMs have and, and, and can apply into the market. And I think that's what they're really struggling with. And, and also, it's mass market EVs that are starting to dominate in China as the industry matures there. And Tesla just doesn't have a true mass market EV. And I think that's probably why you've seen this, this U-turn in terms of strategy in terms yeah. of trying to, to rush out a, a smaller EV to compete in the Chinese market. Same thing's happening globally to them, right? VW, you got all the OEMs now pumping out numerous models. It's becoming more challenging for them to compete. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Okay, quite interesting. Um, so lots of column inches being uh, written on lithium this month, and uh, we'll talk about that in a second maybe. But I just want to talk about graphite, which obviously is the forgotten battery material in many ways. And struggle a little bit with graphite, because if I look at Chinese graphite concentrate prices, they're up 29% over the last 12 months. And if I look at graphite equity performance, they're down 5 to 10% over the last 12 months. And there just seems to be this lack of understanding that the, you know, we are starting to see quite a substantial squeeze now in graphite raw material prices in China, but we're not really seeing any, any reaction from the equities. And beyond that, when we start to sort of look into the midstream, the anode material sector, our supply demand work suggests that there's going to be a very, very material gap between supply and demand in, in anode materials particularly in the Western world, but, but to a lesser extent in China over the next five or six years. And I think we're just not really seeing the equity market sort of pick up on, on graphite as a material in any way, shape or form. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Equity market can basically only cover natural graphite, right? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of synthetic graphite companies out there that are listed, but um, it's really natural graphite. And obviously, we saw a big run-up in Chinese flake imports in 2019 that then dropped off. But yeah. this year, we've also seen a big run-up in Chinese flake imports. And what's very interesting now is we're starting to see a squeeze in prices as well. So we're starting to see flake concentrate prices into China increase quite substantially. And the equity market is really not picking up on the yeah. potential of graphite at all, in my view. As you said, the flake imports are up, showing that the that the Chinese appetite for natural graphite has grown. It used to be predominantly synthetic, but the synthetic industry is in all sorts of uh, types of trouble at the moment. There's not enough graphitization capacity. The raw materials are being used in 
other material, other industries, raw material prices are up in synthetic graphite. There is not a lot of expansion of existing synthetic graphite facilities in China due to environmental reasons, uh, which China is coming down quite heavy in that industry. And the immediate solution to that is flake graphite. Yeah. Fair. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, graphite definitely bears bears looking at a, a yeah. little bit deeper. I mean, I think a real struggle for, for Western investors is that the companies are still quite small in terms of market value. But I think most of the flake graphite is coming from Africa. Is there historically uh, U.S. equity investors, is there an appetite to invest in graphite mines in Africa? Is, yes. uh, the Chinese obviously have that appetite and are more than willing. but most of us being, uh, you know, get, obviously there's uh, resources in, in Canada and uh, Brazil, right? Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting um, stories coming to the market. And yes, if anybody is interested in graphite, you can obviously download our, our graphite introduction, our graphite primer for free off our, our website. So uh, feel free to have it. Yeah. Anyway, to finish off with lithium, obviously huge amount of column inches written about lithium this month. It is our feature article, so I'm not going to sort of talk too much about it. If um, if people want it, uh, want to know more about our views on lithium, they can uh, read back the materials <laughs> review. But just one thing to to flag, I think, in terms of the supply side, is that obviously we're expecting a wall of lithium spodumene concentrate to come out of Australia this year. We're expecting a, a very substantial increase out of Chile. We saw a big increase in exports from Chile in May. And then Chile has really struggled to sort of export substantial amounts since May. And Australian spodumene concentrate exports were down again in October. And again, Australia has really struggled to, to add supply as well. So, you know, it comes back to this issue again that, uh, you know, a lot of bulge bracket brokers are negative on lithium because they reckon that there's going to be oversupply. And as yet, that oversupply hasn't really manifested. Not really, but the, if you look at the Albemarle SQM in the last eighteen months, right, have have almost not doubled, but like added an extra fifty percent of capacity on, right, in a short period of time. And I think mm. that looks looks good to the brokers, right? That, but, but I think the, the the thing that that you know a lot of industry specialists talk about is that capacity is not production, and we're not seeing the huge increase in in shipments that we're expecting to see. You know, you look at the Australian lithium hydroxide operations, they're still in qualification. They're not exporting large amounts of material. You look at the expansion projects in Argentina, um, the major ones have been delayed into 2023. You look at the expansion projects and greenfield hard rock projects in, in Western Australia again, you know, we're seeing delayed and, and slightly lower than expected shipments. So, you know, I think... It, just want to emphasize again that a, a lot of these bold bracket brokers looking into the industry from outside are overstating what the potential is for supply growth in, in, in the industry. And obviously, you know, one specific issue this month is that um, a lot of the lipidolite capacity in China is idled at the moment for environmental inspections. And that's been a, a source of huge growth in, in supply or certainly in industrial grade, but to some extent battery grade supply in China over the last six months. So, you know, if that if that stays idled in December into January, that's going to have impacts on supply demand, I would say. 
every Chinese analyst is forecasting oversupply of lithium, basically based on lipididide. Uh, as you said, it's uh, a few projects are on maintenance right now. Uh, Matt, I'm not sure. Shut down for at least one is shut down for environmental issues. Then a few jumped on and then some maintenance. But um, the lipididite is by far the largest source of lithium in the country. And I think that the, the big thing that, that we need to flag about the lipidolite is this difference between battery grade and industrial grade. And um, probably 60 to 70% of the lipidolite or the lithium carbonate produced from lipidolite is not battery grade. So it needs to be upgraded to be battery grade usage. And yeah. obviously that has recovery impacts. And there is a shortage of of upgrading capacity in the system. So while you can produce lithium carbonate in China from lipidolite, you may not necessarily be able to produce battery grade lithium carbonate straight away. That's one of the issues. I think it's uh, another analyst was uh, mentioning how a lot of this has been double counted uh, as capacity. And and that's seen throughout the industry uh, between uh, Mining capacity to LCE production capacity to, uh, and then of course, a lot of this has to be upgraded, has been double counted. What we're seeing at the moment is we're seeing a lot of companies that are in the lithium ceramics industry trying to push their production over to the, to the battery industry because obviously of the weakness in the Chinese property environment. Obviously, when the Chinese property business comes back, that material is likely to go back to ceramics usage. It's not a, a consistent, it's not a constant transfer. It's just material that is available in the system now may very well not be available in the system in six months or 12 months time. Yeah, yeah. There's apparently bigger buying power in that Chinese market also in terms of getting their hands on, on the lithium products for um, construction industry and yeah. cement and uh, steel. My um, takeaway is that, yes, there is a lot of negative stuff being written about lithium at the moment, but um, I'm not as worried as, as uh, a number of the bulge bracket brokers out there are, should we say. And, uh, you know, I go, I go into my explanation of, of why I'm not, uh, not as worried in the, yeah. uh, the five-page article in, in this uh, issue of Battery Materials Review. Looking forward to reading it. Send my copy over. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, great. I uh, think we will call it a day there. And um, I'll say uh, thanks very much to Cormac and uh, look forward uh, to speaking to you in the new year. Yeah, have a good Christmas, Matt. Talk to you in the new year. Okay, thanks very much. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for December. As always, you can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.